I'm going to read uh, chapters 6 and 7. So if you have access to a Bible, look there with me. I'm not going to ask you to stand today, but maybe we as the people of God would just have that in our hearts and minds that my posture is, is one of preparation. I'm, I'm ready by the power of the Spirit to hear and receive God's word to me. I hope that's your heart this morning. Revelation chapter six. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Chapter seven. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 thousand from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. That's the part of our Bible reading that we often are like, okay, on to the next part. But it is in here for a reason. The Holy God breathed this out so that we would know something about his glorious salvation. After this, I look, verse nine, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Now, your first question may be, how in the world are we going to get through all that? We'll figure it out. The second question may be this, because when we get to chapter 6, there's always the question in the book of Revelation, or perhaps as you've studied it in your own time, you've read through this in your personal study, and you begin to think, when is this occurring? When are these events happening? Have these events already happened? Will these events happen in the future? How many of these events will happen in the future? Are these events happening now? These are all the questions that are coming right here beginning in chapter 6. So just for a moment, you didn't ask for this, but I thought it would be um, good for us to just walk through the four major interpretive views at this point in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to very briefly give us a snapshot of each view. So there's a chart here on the screen. You could take a picture. You can email me later with a question, or I can send you those charts. And again, as we go throughout the book of Revelation, if you have a question that's pertaining to a particular message, you can go to southpoint.org slash A-S-K, ask, and you can ask a question, and then our plan is to cover that in the subsequent messages. So again, I'm going to very briefly give you a picture of the interpretive views at this point, okay? And if you say, man, I hold to that view, and you did not treat it fairly, that was not my point, okay? I'm giving us a brief synopsis of the, the views that happen once we get to this point in Revelation. The first is this. Uh, this is in no particular order, but there are the views of a, a preterist, meaning as we look at these events in the book of Revelation, uh, those taking this interpretive method would see that Revelation, the events here, were fulfilled in first century um, Rome, during Rome's conquest of Jerusalem. Okay, And there's a couple of orthodox views regarding the millennium. You can look there in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, there's, there's a couple of views which are in the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Okay, The first is this. This is partial preterism. Uh, there's also preterism, which I didn't include, uh, because I don't really include that as within the bounds of orthodoxy. We could, we could debate that a bit, but... I just included this because there are um, good folks that hold to a partial preterism view. This is the view that the Great Tribulation, you could see some of that, the GT on the, the timeline. The, the Great Tribulation occurred following Jesus' ascension into heaven and was concluded in 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. We are now then, this view would say, in the era of proclamation as a church, which will conclude with the final resurrection and the judgment day. Now, there is also post-millennialism, which is really rising as of recent uh, but postmillennialism would say that we are now in the era of proclamation, and at some point, Satan will be bound himself, 
and the millennium reign of Christ will begin and all or most in the world will at that time become Christians, that the church will actually be victorious and the millennium reign will end with the great tribulation and the last battle. Now, you also have the historicist position, which is essentially saying that Revelation is a record of history from Jesus Christ's birth to the end of the world. And we see this in a progressive fulfillment. And there is a lot of uh, symbolism and imagery throughout the book of Revelation. The predominant view within this particular position is amillennialism. And amillennialism is the view that say, would say we're also now in the era of proclamation and are experiencing tribulation in the here and now. We're in the church age now, which this view would say is the thousand-year reign in Revelation chapter 20. And at some point in history, the great tribulation and the last battle, which you see over there to the right, will occur. And through the tribulation, the church will be present, and it is to persevere. You also have the futurist position where everything will be fulfilled in the future. The tribulation is to come. Revelation is predictive of the time right before uh, this word, the perusia or the second coming. Now, within this, you have two main views. That would be historic premillennialism, which is a linear literal reading of Revelation, uh, whereas we've been looking at the book of Revelation as what does John see next, the historic premillennial view would say what happens next in the text. And then there is dispensational premillennialism. You may have heard it called dispensationalism. And this was the view of Tim LaHaye who popularized this in many ways, at least for uh, many folks, through the Left Behind series in the 90s. Now, that's not to say all the sensational things around that are fair of this dispensational premillennial view. Uh, but just so you know, that's, that's that view. This view believes that we are in the church age until the rapture, which is said to occur right before Revelation chapter 6, which is why I wanted to take a moment to give you some interpretive views this morning. You say, I didn't know I was coming to a lecture. We're going to get into the text in just a moment, but I thought it was good and right and fair to just say there are a lot of godly brothers and sisters now and throughout the church's history that have believed different things in interpreting the book of Revelation. Does everybody understand that? A lot of godly brothers and sisters that have had different ways of interpreting the book of Revelation. And so I wanted to take a moment for you to, one, understand that. And if there is something here that would, that would jog you to think, man, I really want to go and look more into that particular perspective, please do that. And I would be happy to provide you with, with good resources in each of those uh, positions. But in the dispensational premillennial view, uh, the church in this view would be raptured prior to chapter 6, caught up prior to the seven-year tribulation to which then would culminate in the great tribulation. And at that time, those who are left behind would still, if they had not already, have the opportunity to trust Christ as Savior. And then Jesus Christ returns for a second time at the end of the Great Tribulation to issue a 1,000 millennium year reign, which concludes with the final judgment. So, preterist, historicist, futurist, and then finally, I won't say much about this, but there is the idealist position, which would see revelation not as individual fulfillments, but depicting transcendent spiritual realities. Okay? There's that. Some of you are like, I never would have asked for that, and I never want to see that again. And others of you are like, that was awesome. Show us more charts. That's it. That's it. So I, I want to I make a few comments before moving on. The, the first I've already alluded to, there are godly brothers and sisters, 
men and women who hold the historic tenets of the faith that believe differently with one of these interpretive views of the book of Revelation. In fact, I know that multiple views are held within our own church. I know that personally, okay? That's okay. We're not going to duke it out. We're not going to do that during this time. This is not a top-tier issue. It's not salvific. Second, you may be thinking, why in the world does it matter which perspective that I take? Dory and I talked a lot about this this week. As I was laying there, why can't I go to sleep? Uh, Chris, don't pick a perspective. Well, perhaps if you feel that way, you might identify with the pan-millennial view. And perhaps you've heard the pan-millennial view, but it basically says this, it's all going to pan out in the end. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, here's the good news. If you are in Christ, none of these end-of-the-world scenarios will be the end for you. None of them will be. So you may fall into one of these camps and you might find out that you were right or you were wrong, but if you are in Christ, zero of these end of the world scenarios will be your end. You will be in glory with the Lord God Almighty, worshiping before his throne that we looked at, such a beautiful picture last week, and you will be with him for all time. And that is good news, amen. One day, no matter how all of the millennium details work out, Jesus Christ is going to return in all his glory to judge the living and the dead, and he will not lose one person that is his. He won't lose anyone that is his, and he will raise them up with him on that final day. With that said, here's what expectant living through the apocalypse looks like. Expectant living through the apocalypse looks like. Some of you are like, man, I've been preparing for this for a long time. You didn't have to tell me anything from the Bible. I know exactly what to do to get through the apocalypse. This is, this is even better, y'all. What God's word has to say is better than anything that we could do to prep and prepare. This is God's word for his people, that we might know him and that we might be assured that we are sealed in him. So six things you can expect. The first is this, that there will be war, disease, and death. Last week in chapter four, we were introduced to these four living creatures which were around the throne, and they were full of eyes in front and behind, One was like a lion, another was like an ox, one had the face of a man, and and another uh, like an eagle in flight. And one of the four creatures, John says here in chapter 6, speaks like a voice, like thunder, and John hears the word, come. Immediately, John sees a what-colored horse? A white horse. We're about to be introduced to what you may have heard as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, the four horsemen represent what happens on earth when Jesus Christ and his kingdom begin to press in on the world. His kingdom is here. He inaugurated it as he is born, as he lived his life, as he died on the cross He died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. The kingdom is inaugurated, and as the kingdom of Jesus Christ goes forward, the forces of darkness begin to push against. Resistance and opposition comes. Now, John sees this horse because Jesus, the lamb, has just done what in the text? He's opened the first of the seven seals, and to catch us up, The seven seals are keeping a what? A scroll that is filled front and back from being opened. And only Jesus, we found this out last week, is 
is worthy to be able to open this scroll. And at this point in redemptive history, all eyes in the heavenly places are watching Jesus as he opens this first seal. What is to come? Remember, everything in heaven and on earth has been focused in, and should be our focus as well, to the center of the cosmos that is the Lord God Almighty. Everything is to focus in on its center. And so now we're focused in. All of heaven is looking at the throne, and at the throne is where the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is. And now there's a white horse with a rider on it. Now, if you've read or studied Revelation before, perhaps you know that this image also looks like someone else in Revelation chapter 19. Who is that? Jesus. This rider on the horse looks like that of Jesus as he comes in Revelation 19, but we aren't there yet. In fact, this is an antichrist. This is someone with an opposite deceptive look. He looks like Christ, but he is not. He's one who looks like Christ, but he's deceiving many, symbolizing the many throughout history who have come out conquering and to conquer. Now, John, the apostle John, who gives us this revelation, has already written about the spirit of Antichrist in his other epistles. In particular, in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, he writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So the spirit of this first horse is the idea that there is a way to believe in Jesus that has nothing to do with the Bible. The idea, and you've heard it before, there are many ways to get to heaven. You don't just have to believe in Jesus. You could believe in Jesus, or you could believe in Muhammad. You could believe in Allah. You could go the way of nirvana in the Buddhist religion. Whatever way, you find heaven. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. That would be a lie. There is only one way to, get to God. And that is through his son, Christ Jesus, the Lord, who we see here, the middle of the throne is the lamb. Now, before we move to the next seal, I want you to notice what the writer has. He has a bow and what else? Crown. And how does John tell us that he gets those things? He was given those things. So, so many of us are fearful of the persecution, the suffering, and the tribulation that is to come, and for so many around this world has already come, but I want you to hear this loud and clear already at the beginning of our time together this morning, that evil is not in charge. Satan is not on the throne. The Lord God Almighty is. And I think that that's why we have this perspective of the apocalypse, chapter 4 and 5, that we get a picture of the heavenly places, the one who is already seated on the throne. And it's not Satan. It's not the powers of evil. God is already there. He's been there. He's been there. We don't have to worry about the things that are to come. You say, how, how does that all make sense, though? Because that means that these forces of evil, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, are ultimately subjected to God Almighty. How in the world does all of that make sense? One, the biblical account tells us that God is not the author of evil, and yet all things work together for his glory under his sovereign plans for the world. Evil is at best, church, on a leash. Remember, back in Genesis, when Joseph's brothers were begging from him mercy and forgiveness. Why? Because his brothers had sold him into slavery. They had went back and told their father, hey, Joseph was, was mauled by an animal, and this is 
all we have left, a piece of his garment. And then they end up finding him, and he is the head of all the land in Egypt, and they are totally scared. What in the world is happening? And they beg for mercy and forgiveness. And when Joseph forgives them, he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So I don't know how it all works out in the grand scheme of things, but I do know this, that God is on his throne. He is sovereign above all things, and evil is at best on a leash. That's it. That's what we know. The second seal is opened in verse 3 where we see a red horse. We were told this horse was coming by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 6. I believe that text is on the screen. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place but the end is not yet. Now, why is this horse red? Its rider, the text says, was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. It's red from the blood of men and women, boys and girls even, killing each other. Now, I don't have to tell you this, we are a culture that has already been given over to rage. You know that in of yourself. If you're a parent, you feel it rising up at times. You feel it sitting in traffic. I mentioned I-285 in a positive sense last week. I-285 in a negative sense. You feel the rage rising up in you, our culture has been given over to rage and anger. We've convinced ourselves that this is normal, that rage and anger is the way that we live. That to, be, to debate until you destroy someone on Facebook is normal. Even in the church, we're going to just destroy each other for the world to see. We've been given over to rage, and the church in so many ways has given in. The media is literally bent on the world taking sides so that we would watch and listen to more of it. Whether this has different political views, skin color, economic class, religious beliefs, you name it, hate is our game. Our Bible says that this is no coincidence. The next time you feel yourself being given over to anger, consider, whose am I? Whose am I? Do I belong to the one who all things are pointing to, the center of the cosmos that is the Lord God Almighty, or have I been given over to that, the spirit of the age, Satan himself, the Antichrist? For those who have trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, we know that our is the Lord's. We are his. In verse 5, we're shown the third horse, and it's black. Its rider has a pair of scales in his hand, and John hears a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Again, Jesus told us that this horse was coming in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, here's what we're supposed to think here, crazy inflation. You're thinking, I have been thinking that. But it's said here in the text that things are going to get so bad that a daily wage may be just enough or not even enough to buy what is needed for that day. Now, if you remember back, if you've been with us throughout our time in the book of Revelation, we've already heard that this is affecting the seven churches that the apostle John is writing to, that Jesus speaks to himself. It was already happening to them. Some of them were being forced out of the, the trade guilds. They were being unable to work in their cities. 
You're a Christian, you can't work here. You're a Christian, I'm not gonna buy from you. You're not gonna have any money. You're not gonna have what is needed. It was already happening. What's happening is that what the world really needs, though, is being removed, we see, while the luxuries are the only thing left. In each of these scenarios, we aren't supposed to think, have I got enough to survive? Can I make it through as an individual, as families? Will we be okay during this time? But rather, the question that I do not want us to miss in all this is, do I have true life? Because what happens if you think, if you walk out of the church today and you think, man, I am ready financially, food-wise, electric-wise, you name it. I've got it all. I'm ready, come what may. You walk out of here and you don't have true life. What do you have? You have anything? You may make it a couple more days. Preparations are fine. True life is best. True life is best. Do you have food, like Jesus said, that the world knows nothing about? Now, the fourth horse of verse 7 is said to be pale. And this, this horse, we get the idea that he looks sickly. The rider of this horse is named what? Death. And death is followed by Hades, the place of the dead. And we see there in the text that it covers a fourth of the world. This isn't pervasive death at this point, but it is wide and fast. It's not the end yet, but it is really bad. And what's happening here is that as the world heads toward final judgment are two things. One, for those who are rejecting Christ, we want to see that the judgment for them has already become. The final judgment is to come, but the judgment for them on their behalf is already here. Our world is already experiencing judgment in a sense for our rejection and rebellion of him. And second, for those that are Christ's and find themselves in the middle of this, the persecution will prove, don't miss this, to be a refining fire. The Lord never wastes our suffering. You can say that yesterday, you can say that today, and you can say that tomorrow. The Lord never wastes your suffering. We may wonder why it's happening, why has he brought these things into my life? What will happen? Why is this happening? It may push you to question God's good purposes and his ultimate plan for your life, but he isn't wasting it. He's conforming you into the image of his son. So what can you expect as you live through the apocalypse? War, disease, and death. You can also expect that there will be persecution. Verse nine, chapter six, the fifth seal is opened in verse 9, and John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. You see, here we're supposed to get this picture of an Old Testament sacrifice. For when the, an animal was sacrificed, its blood would drip down and it would be caught in a basin under the altar. Who are under the altar here? those who have been killed and martyred for their faith. Now, last Christmas, maybe many of you participated in this and have some, for some time, but we let the kids, our, our two, uh, participate in, um, in Operation Christmas Child. We let them fill up a box one day after school. We picked them up. We went to the store and we said, hey, uh, this is your age and this is your age. This is your gender. This is your gender. And y'all just go fill up these boxes. And we told them along the way what the point of the box was, okay? What's the point? There are people in other parts of the world that do not have the things that you do. When it's time for Christmas, they are going to be able to open this box and they're going to have gifts that their parents would not have been able to give them otherwise, okay? We told that, we rehearsed that, we walked throughout the store, they filled up their boxes, and as we were checking out, really like that toy. Can I have that toy? No, 
This is for someone else. Who is it? This is how old he is. It's a boy. It's going for this. I'm trying to give them a perspective, and yet sometimes it's really difficult because we don't live in that reality, the majority of us, right? We want to get a global perspective, but it's really hard because we don't live that way. I say that because when we hear about persecution as Christians, we get it, but we don't really. Like we, we pray, we try to keep regularly before our church in our Sunday prayers that there are brothers and sisters that are being persecuted for their faith and we pray for them and we hope that God would give them patient endurance, but we don't really live like that, do we? I don't think we're supposed to feel guilty or bad about that. It's just not the perspective that we live with, but I still want to give us some global perspective. Opendoorsus.org, again, opendoorsus.org has a watch list on it with countries around the world where Christians experience persecution today, and they always give a ranking of which Christians in which place are facing the most persecution at any given moment. So let me give you some statistics. Again, global perspective. We hear persecution in, in the Bible and we're like, yes, but not really. It's here. The church is being persecuted. More than 365 million Christians in the world today face high or extreme levels of persecution. Here are the numbers. One in seven Christians worldwide are persecuted. One in seven. One in five in Africa. Two in five Christians in Asia are persecuted. Almost 5,000 Christians were murdered last year directly because of the faith that they have in Christ Jesus. 15,000 churches and Christian properties were attacked because they were of the Christian faith. Now, we've gotten a reprieve here in the States. We live in a blessed land and a blessed time. So when we talk about persecution, it feels so far removed. And when we look at the statistics, we see one in seven Christians around the world is actually persecuted for their faith. The church is being persecuted globally. Jesus told us to expect it as his disciples, and this certainly should be our expectation, but don't miss the next one either. There will be answered prayers for justice. One day, there will be answered prayers for justice. John hears these believers under the altar praying to the sovereign Lord. That's the same sovereign Lord that Peter and John, John himself, again, the writer of this letter, Peter and John prayed in Acts chapter 4 as they had just been released from prison. I talk about this often. They had just been released from prison and told never to speak about the name of Jesus again. And they immediately go and pray to this same sovereign Lord. He is the Lord who is over it all. And so we pray to him in time of need, don't we, church? The saint's prayer is this. How long, O Lord? How long, O oh Lord? To which, what did they hear? They hear a little longer. That's exactly what the church at Smyrna heard in chapter two. In the midst of their suffering, they hear from Jesus, do not fear. I know you have a lot going on. You're already suffering, but do not fear what you are about to suffer. The day is not yet, but there is coming a day when each of the prayers of the saints will be answered. God has determined a date in which all will be set right. The suffering of God's people will come to a final end, and his word to the church is, you just need to wait a little longer. Revelation, you see, 
is not a book on how to avoid persecution as Christians. It is an encouragement to patiently endure. Say that one more time. Revelation is not a book on how to avoid persecution as Christians. It is an encouragement to patiently endure. That's why we've been given the revelation. For one day, there will be a final judgment. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. This is a revelation of the final judgment day. This is the day that the saints under the altar have been praying for. And the imagery here is in verses 12 through 14, the same as the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and even Jesus as they described the day of final judgment. Each spoke about the earth shaking, the moon turning red, the stars falling from the sky. This is supposed to be absolutely terrifying. The day of judgment is here in these verses. This is the day in which God gives humanity that which humanity has been crying out for all along, to be our own God. That is what unregenerate man wants most. Can I be my own God? And on that day, there will be no prayers to that God. The text shows us. The prayers will be elsewhere, won't they? They will be to the rocks and to the mountains. Not to save them, but to crush them. Why? For it would be better that all of the mountains and rocks on this earth on that final day crush these men and women, instead of standing before a holy God on that final day, not sealed in Christ Jesus. If you're hearing this message today and you're still caught in your sin, you have never turned from your sin, you have never repented, you've never trusted in Christ Jesus, your sin before a holy God, that means that today the Lord will still hear you. If you hear that today, the Lord will still hear your prayers. Do not wait for that final day, for on that day you will be wishing that the mountains and rocks would crush you so that you would not have to bear up under the weight the payment that is due for your sin before a holy God for all eternity. Now, I don't intend to scare you. I'm not trying to be a fire and brimstone preacher. The scriptures are clear. There is wrath being stored up for all those who have never trusted in Christ Jesus by faith for the forgiveness of sins. All those who reject the offer of Christ's salvation. Why? Because God is holy and we are not apart from him. And then there is this lingering question. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who will be able to stand in that day? And we get a bit of pause for now there is this picture for how God will keep those that are his safe on that day, and we get this expectation that there will be protection. Chapter 7. I'm going to move through chapter 7 with a bit more speed, okay? Uh, so we see here in the text that there are four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. The text says, holding back the four winds of the earth, and then another angel calls to keep the winds of destruction at bay until God's servants can be marked for safety. Now, I want you to think back to the Old Testament. Where else have you heard about a marking for God's people? Where is it? Exodus. In the, in the Exodus story, God told Moses what the Israelites needed to do on the night of that final plague, that their doors, the doorposts were to be marked by the blood of an innocent lamb. And if they were marked, if those doors were sealed, the angel of death would do what? Pass over them. These servants here in the text 
are servants of God being marked by the blood of the lamb so that they will not face the wrath of God. And then John hears the number of the sealed in verse 4, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, I'm not going to read all of those tribes again, but this is a really big number. It's supposed to. We talked about uh, various numbers throughout the book of Revelation. This is a really big number, 12 times 12, boom, boom, boom. To say completeness or countlessness, it's a vast number. Who are the 144,000? Who is this vast number? I will first say, entire religions have been erroneously built on this number. Jehovah's Witnesses are built on this particular thing. So, It's important. What God has to say is really important here. In Jewish traditions, genealogy, these lists, are really important. They're a really big deal. So when John records this list in this particular order, in a way that we don't see anywhere else in the Old Testament, he's making then a theological statement. First, John lists the tribe of Judah first. Now, I'll just stop here and say there are... Again, other interpretations of this, okay? John lists the tribe of Judah first, but Judah isn't the firstborn. Reuben is. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, Judah is told by his father Jacob that the scepter would not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Now we see that it has happened. Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, has come and people from every tribe and nation are included in this number. Now John's list also includes Joseph, but not Ephraim and Dan. Dan and Ephraim, if you remember back in the Old Testament story, had given themselves into idolatry and they had never come back. So what we are given here by John is showing that not everyone who is a part of the visible church here on earth will receive the seal of God. You've heard this said before, but just because you are attending church does not mean that you are God's. Just just because you come and attend and serve does not mean that you are going to be found in Christ on that final day. Those who are found on that final day, safe and sealed, are going to be those who have trusted by faith in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It's only by grace through faith that you are saved. In verse 9, we're seeing this church across the ages, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And you want to get pumped up about something? There are going to be all kinds of people around the throne room of God, people who don't look like us, people who don't talk like us on this earth people that you don't think believed exactly like you. And everyone together with a loud voice is going to do the only thing that they know to do. Cry out, verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Because they will know then fully that they are before the throne, not because of anything that they accomplished in this life, not because of any good works that they did, but because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Finally, what will life be like at the end of the apocalypse? There will be the presence of Christ. And here's something we can all agree on. Who can stand? That was the lingering question at the end of chapter six. Who can stand? The people of God can stand. Why? For Christ Jesus came and he conquered. He died on a cross and anyone who trusts in him by faith will have forgiveness and they will then be sealed for all eternity. 
The people of God are given pure garments, having been washed white. What a picture. In the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14. And what is life like for the Christian in this place? Verse 15. Before the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple, sheltered by God with his presence. Verse 16. There will be no hunger or thirst. There will be no more sunburn. Verse 17, and Christ, who's in the middle of the throne, will be our shepherd, guiding us into the springs of living water and the tears. God will wipe them away from every eye. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we are told that in Jesus also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I don't know about you, but these chapters urge me to consider whether my life bears the fruit of that seal. Who am I? Whose am I? Is the life I am living in keeping with the life of the lamb who was slain, and as at the center of the throne, do I bear the seal of the Holy Spirit? And if I do, praise the Lord and beg of him to give you endurance, to give you patient endurance for the days ahead. Endurance that would give you a heart of compassion to go and tell a world that do not know that Christ Jesus is Lord. A zeal for the lost as the spirit of this age pushes so hard to keep those in their blindness. A willingness to be persecuted for the cause of Christ, an interest in spiritual things, an identity with Christ that colors your closest relationships and habits. Do I bear the seal of the Holy Spirit? That's the question that we should ask. And if you do not bear the seal of the Holy Spirit, my prayer is that you would repent of your sins today and turn to Christ, who is merciful now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us a chance to gather together as your people. I thank you that we have read of your word, heard about your word, God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would testify to your work in our lives. I thank you that you have sealed by your grace every single person that is yours. You've given them the guarantee of your Holy Spirit until that final day when they will acquire it fully, finally pray for those of us who have trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that you would grant us patient endurance, a willingness to examine ourselves. Are our relationships bearing the fruit that you would have them? Are our habits pointing to the seal that is ours in Christ Jesus by your spirit? If we've never trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, I pray that by the Spirit you would draw men and women, boys and girls, to yourself today while there is still time that they too might be sealed with the guarantee of your Holy Spirit. Give us patient endurance. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.